Welcome to the Apostles Houston podcast, and thanks for listening. As a community following Jesus in Houston, we want to be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do the kinds of things Jesus did. Wherever you are on your spiritual journey, we invite you to join us for worship each Sunday at 10 a.m. in Houston Heights. For more information, visit us online at ApostlesHouston.org. Uh, great. So, good morning. My name is David Cumbie. I'm the lead pastor here at uh, Apostles. And I uh, just want to say uh, how um, excited we are, if, especially if today is your first time. But we love having folks worship with us and visit with us. And if you were not here last week, uh, just to catch you up uh, real quickly, we are entering into a new series. Ryan mentioned this at the beginning of the service. Uh, it's a series we're calling Living Water for Thirsty People. <clears throat> And over the next six weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to look intently at the passage of John chapter 4, Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman uh, at the well. And we're going to ask God what he wants to teach us uh, really about Jesus, about himself, uh, about ourselves, and then ultimately about the ministry of evangelism. So that's, that's kind of our goal in a nutshell and what we plan to do. So this morning, I wanna invite you to grab a Bible. Uh, there should be some in the seat backs near you if you wanna grab one or share with a neighbor and open up to those verses I just read, John chapter four, verses one through six, because that's where we're gonna focus our attention this morning as we get started and work our way through John chapter four. And I really want to just kind of look at this text together and make a few important observations uh, about what we see here and then kind of consider their implications, particularly through the lens of evangelism, this idea of sharing uh, the gospel with others that they might believe in him and have life in his name, as we said last week. So uh, first thing I want to just point out uh, is this, is that what I think we see here is evangelism by Jesus that is spirit led. Evangelism that is spirit-led. Uh, so look at the beginning of this section. What it tells us is that Jesus learns something interesting. There's news. There's, kind of, uh, there's something kind of circulating, and the news is this. The Pharisees have heard that Jesus' influence is now surpassing the influence of John the Baptist. Now, why is that important? Why does that matter here in this opening of the story? I think it's important to remember a few things. One, the Pharisees, uh, who they are. They are a devout religious order. You might think of them that, that way in the ancient Israel. So they're this religious order, and they are, in a way, they're kind of the self-appointed gatekeepers of the law. They are committed to following the law and committed to the worship of Yahweh, the one true God. And so there, 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 there are some great things about the, uh, the Pharisees, but there's also what I would say is a fatal flaw, and it comes up again and again and again in the Gospels. And the fatal flaw, you might sum it up as self-righteousness. Self-righteousness, and John the Baptist and Jesus call this out in the Pharisees regularly. And so they pose a threat, John the Baptist and Jesus, to the Pharisees' authority. John, in particular, he, he, uh, he calls the Pharisees a brood of vipers. Later in John chapter 8, Jesus calls them hypocrites and liars. And so I just mentioned that because clearly Jesus has no problem confronting opposition head on, right? challenging their authority, calling out their self-righteousness and their sin. No problem doing that, which is what makes what happens next incredibly interesting to me. 
because, as we're told this about the Pharisees, uh, we're also told that Jesus, quote, left Judea and departed again to Galilee. In other words, what we see here is an instance where Jesus doesn't confront. He kind of steps back from the conflict that's emerging. So just looking at that, here's my question. How does Jesus know when to boldly stand against opposition and when to de-escalate in the face of opposition? How does he know when to say something and what to say and who to say it to or to not say something? And then following on that, how do we know when to say something, when to press in, when to fight, and when to de-escalate? So imagine, uh, I was just trying to think through this, imagine on my next uh, flight, you know, the classic, I'm on a flight and there's uh, someone next to me and maybe they don't know Jesus and what am I going to do, you know? Imagine I'm on that flight and I'm sitting there, do I take the, the checks mix and try to fashion that into a conversation about our eternal destiny with Jesus? Like, what's the segue, right? Like, how am I going to manage that? Or, or do I change seats? <laughs> do I bring up my faith with my client or do I wait for a better opportunity? Uh, do I offer to pray with that neighbor or that friend that I know doesn't know Jesus but is going through something difficult, or do I just pray silently for them in the moment? How do I know? How did Jesus know? It's interesting. Earlier in John chapter 1, we're told something critically important about Jesus, and it's on the lips of John the Baptist. And he says this. He says at Jesus' baptism, I saw the Spirit the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him, on Jesus. Elsewhere in the Gospels, we're told that Jesus was led by the Spirit, that he was filled by the Spirit. In fact, Jesus describes this same kind of leading uh, in different language at the end of this encounter with the woman at the well. In John chapter four, later he says this, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish this work. In in other words, Jesus is always listening to the Spirit in order to know what to do and what to say. And I think this reveals a powerful truth about evangelism that can help us and encourage us and sustain us, that it is ultimately a Spirit-led ministry. Evangelism is not ultimately about how much you know, we might say. It's more about who you know and who you listen to. I have relationships in my life with non-Christians, with friends that I long for them to know the person of Jesus. And sometimes my relationship with them feels incredibly challenging. (laughs) I don't always know how to navigate this question of sharing the gospel with them what that looks like. I want to love them well, but sometimes that doesn't feel self-evident. And so maybe there's a conversation in a relationship you have with someone that doesn't know Jesus and you don't know where to start that conversation or how to have that conversation. Maybe there's an opportunity that's going to come up this week for you to tell someone in your life about the hope that you have in Jesus Christ. 
And when it comes, this is my encouragement to myself and to all of us. When it comes, ask the Holy Spirit to help give you the words to say or to not say. To help you know what to do or to not do. And I would encourage you, before it even comes, spend time with Jesus this week. (laughs) Spend time in word and in prayer so that when those moments come, you are ready because you're already listening. In other words, trust in him before, during, and after those moments come. So I just want to encourage us, you know, evangelism can feel daunting. It can feel feel overwhelming. But it's a spirit-led endeavor. So be encouraged. Second thing I want to point out here in John chapter 4 is this, that evangelism is part of God's bigger plan to make disciples. Evangelism is part of God's plan to make disciples. So again, look back at John chapter 4. This is so interesting to me. Notice the concern that the Pharisees have is that Jesus is doing what? Making disciples, making and baptizing even more disciples than John was making. John was, was killing it. He had lots of disciples. He was growing. People were coming out of the city to see him, and now Jesus is surpassing him. But what's he surpassing him in? The making and baptizing of disciples. So Jesus had been teaching He'd been healing. We see that even in the beginnings of John chapter four. He's doing miracles, but all this is part of a larger kingdom plan to make disciples. Jesus' measure of success is not how many people are in the seats. It is not growth in giving. It is not big plans for a new Capernaum campus, right? That's not how Jesus thinks. What's his plan? To make disciples, to make disciples. In other words, to invite people to follow him and to trust him and be transformed by life in him and with him. That's the invitation and that's his plan. Robert Coleman, uh, in his amazing little book, uh, The Master Plan of Evangelism, which our life group leaders are leading that. There's a copy if you wanna pick one up on the way out in the lobby. It's a great, encouraging book about evangelism. But he says in there, he says this, he says, God wants all people to be saved and to come to a saving knowledge of the truth found in Jesus. To that end, Jesus gave himself to provide salvation for all sin for all people. So, so there was nothing haphazard about his life, no wasted energy, no idle word. He was on business for God. And what was that business? It was to make disciples. His business was to make disciples. And Jesus' business is our business. In fact, Jesus commands us in Matthew chapter 28, go make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so that is our business. And when we understand it's Jesus' business, his plan is to make disciples. I think it helps us see evangelism as part of a bigger process. This is especially true today. I think um, in the world that we live in, the cultural moment we find ourselves in, it takes longer for people to come to faith in some ways than it has at different points in the past. I think that because I think people are much less open in some ways to at least things like coming to church or hearing a preacher talk 
and share the gospel, or coming to an overtly Christian event, even an evangelistic event, less likely to be familiar even with Jesus or believe in a knowable God. We can't assume any of those things to be true. And even, I think, underneath that, there is a pervasive lack of trust of Christians in our culture. Christians no longer have any moral high ground in our culture. They're suspect. They're regressive. And so there's this increasing trust gap between people who identify as not believing in Jesus versus those of us who do. I, I really uh, appreciate this metaphor from my, my buddy, Gare Jones. <clears throat> he talks about this, uh, this, this idea of where we find ourselves in the process of evangelism. He says it this way. He says, our non-Christian friends are like slowly ripening bananas. <laughs> it's just a helpful, now don't go tell your friends, hey, I heard at church you're, you're an unripe banana. Uh, this is just a picture to hold in your head. But imagine a spectrum of green to yellow bananas, right? That's what he's describing. And what he's saying is evangelism isn't just about a moment where you go from one thing to the other. There is a conversion moment, but it happens in the context of a process. And he calls that process ripening unto Jesus. And we get to participate at different parts of that process. And maybe we get to see a green banana go fully yellow. Maybe we get to witness that, praise God. But most of the time, we're just there for a little bit more ripening in the process. And so what it means is we meet them where they are. We walk with them on their journey. It's a community of disciples creating a safe and genuine space for people to learn about and experience Christ. That's what we're trying to do here. That's what we're trying to be here at Church of the Apostles. Because this kind of community It creates opportunities for the gospel. And being this kind of community requires us to be patient and loving. It requires that we do the hard work of communicating God's timeless truths in ways that our culture can understand it. And that takes time and energy and sacrifice. Our friend uh, Sam Alberry, who came uh, last year, I remember he said in one of his talks, he said something to the effect of this. He said, when we are faced with our cultural questions that offend us or baffle us, right, let's resist the temptation to dismiss them as foolish and instead do our best to understand why the person is asking that question that way. Right? So this is recognizing people are in a process. And the questions they ask have everything to do with that process and where they are. And so I was fascinated to come across this uh, list. It's a helpful list of questions, I think, from, uh, from an author who wrote a book called Outside, uh, Thinking Outside the Box About Evangelism, Rick Richardson. Uh, and he talks about the kinds of questions that our culture is asking as they journey through this process. And so one of the things he points out is he says, uh, for example, there are lots of questions right now in our culture among our friends that have everything with uh, the idea of power, right? A lot of talk about power in our culture. And so to many Christians, or many people in our culture, Christians are just another tribe trying to kind of exercise their power on different parts of our culture. And so we have to recognize that that's kind of the waters that we're swimming in, whether we agree with that or not, which I don't think we do, obviously, as followers of Jesus. But we have to recognize that's where the question's coming from when we get these kinds of questions. Many people today have redefined truth as whatever works for you, whatever feels real to you. So in other words, claims that we might make about, quote, the truth are seen as arrogant, offensive, manipulative exercises of power. That's how they're heard 
Again, not because that's necessarily what we're doing or saying, but that is how they are perceived. And so people are asking all kinds of questions like this. They're asking questions uh, about their identity. They're asking questions uh, about um, love and uh, a purpose that we have to kind of think through as followers of Jesus. How are we going to respond uh, with the truth in love to these kinds of questions? To help people come to faith in Christ, we have to be committed not to winning arguments with people and winning culture wars in our moment, but to listening and to understanding and then speaking God's truth in love. Those two things are not mutually exclusive. If we want to see the next generation become lifelong followers of Jesus, we need to be able to answer these and other kinds of questions, not only with our words, but with our lives, lives transformed by Jesus and led by the Holy Spirit or shaped by the word of God. So through evangelism, God is inviting us to enter in to this process wherever people are and to participate in his work to make them into disciples. Finally, evangelism is an expression of God's self-giving love for all people. I think we see that here uh, in a simple phrase in these opening verses of John chapter four. Jesus, we're told, had to pass through Samaria. He had to. Now, uh, in some sense, this is uh, just straight up practical. Uh, He's going A to B, and to get to A to B, Samaria's right in the middle. Some devout Jews might have wanted to go around, but most Jews just went through. They just went straight through, minimal contact, just get through Samaria. And that's because Jews and Samaritans uh, were were at, at odds with each other. Uh, They actually hated each other in many respects. And there's all kinds of reasons for that. So maybe to help us kind of understand just a little bit of history about Samaria and why this is significant that Jesus is traveling through and stopping and speaking with and spending time in the town of Samaritans. So here's the thing about Samaritans. After the Assyrian conquest uh, of the region of Samaria, the northern part of the kingdom uh, in 722, they, uh, the Assyrians deported many people and resettled the area with foreigners, uh, Gentiles. And as a part of that process, what happened was Israelites intermarried with Gentiles. And as they did that, they incorporated different pagan beliefs and practices. And so an illustration of this is in Samaria, what they did was they built their own temple apart from the temple in Jerusalem. And they rejected everything, uh, the Holy Scriptures, the Hebrew Bible, except the Pentateuch. So they had some kind of quirky, different things. And then there was all these kind of syncretistic things that kind of bled in. And so in other words, to the Jewish people, the Samaritans are, um, they are, they're, they're half-bloods. They are, um, they're, they're muggles. I saw that look. They're muggles, right? That's what they are. Uh, and Jews see themselves as pure blood. And so there's this dynamic that's going on in the relationship between these two cultures, and Jesus is putting himself right in the middle of it. And so what this means is this encounter with the Samaritan woman is is a radical act by Jesus. That's why his disciples, when they come back, they're like, what are you doing talking to this woman? 
And he's crossing all kinds of barriers, social barriers, ethnic barriers, economic barriers, religious barriers. And we're going to look at at all these kinds of barriers in the course of going through John chapter 4. But I just want to highlight why I think this is so important kind of on the front end in uh, in the context of Samaria and Israel's relationship. Because what Jesus is doing for this woman is a symbol of what he is doing for the world. And so to help us see that, look back at John chapter 3, verse 29. There's a word that appears, I think, three times there in verse 29. Anybody know what that word is? Bridegroom. Jesus is the bridegroom, John the Baptist says. He says it over and over. Jesus is the bridegroom. And then we move right into this story about Jesus and this woman at a well. Now, I just want to connect some dots for us here. Jesus is like a bridegroom who has come for his bride. So Jesus in this scenario is the bridegroom. Who is the bride? The church, God's people, right? His new covenant people. That's that's the, the, the kind of analogy here. But that's just one layer. What's interesting is in the Old Testament, do you know where a lot of betrothals take place, where foreign men go if they want to meet a nice local lady? Do you know where, where that happens in the Old Testament? At a well. That happens at wells. Interesting. So wells are often the places of betrothals where a foreigner commits to marrying a woman. And one of the prime examples of this, interestingly enough, is Jacob meeting Rachel at a well. Maybe this very well. And so it's also interesting, on top of that, here's another layer, that in the Old Testament, in the prophets like Jeremiah and Hosea, God's people, Israel, are called his betrothed. They are called God's betrothed. So just putting all that together, here we have a man and a woman at a well. We have a bridegroom who's come for his beautiful bride. We have a place where betrothals take place. And we have this understanding of God and his betrothed people. And so what we get is this beautiful picture of God's promises becoming fulfilled in the person of Jesus, the true bridegroom who's come for his church, for his people. So there's one big problem with this picture. She's totally the wrong woman. Let me be clear. She's the wrong kind of woman, right? She's not Jewish. She's Samaritan. She's a muggle, <laughs> right? She, there's something wrong. Okay, we already get a sense of that. But not only that, we go on through the story. We find out she's unclean. She's unfaithful. She's broken. She's guilty. She's heretical. All these things about this woman. She's not a worthy bride for the bridegroom. And yet, the bridegroom has come. And who does he seek out to speak to at this well? The place of betrothal? The Samaritan woman. Jesus is doing something really beautiful here. And this is true in the Gospel of John. Many layers upon layers. Because he wants us to see how good and beautiful Jesus really is. Jesus hasn't come just for Israel. He's come for those outside of Israel too. He has come not just for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. He hasn't come just for the worthy, but for the unworthy, for the least and for the lost. And so this Samaritan woman embodies all of that. In other words, she is a beautiful and powerful picture of God's grace. 
She's a foreshadowing of God fulfilling his promise to, to Abraham. Those verses we read in Genesis chapter 12 that he will bless his descendants and the world through them. And so when we read the story of the Samaritan woman, we are reading our story. In fact, when we witness any wedding, right, any wedding, we are witnessing the grace of God, the story of his gospel, his love for unworthy yet precious bride of Christ. And so at the heart of evangelism, right, is this kind of love, a bridegroom's love for the bride. It's the good news that the bridegroom has come for us and that there's nothing that we have done that can make the bridegroom turn away from us. Nothing. Nothing. There's nothing the bridegroom won't give for his beloved bride, including his life on the cross. There is nothing you have done or will ever do that makes you unworthy of God's love for you. There is nothing that you have done or will ever do that will make you unworthy of God's love. And the world may tell you like it's gonna tell this woman, you're unclean, you're unfaithful, you're broken, you're guilty. But Jesus won't. He chooses you and it's his love that makes you worthy. It's his love that makes you clean. That's at the heart of Jesus. That's at the heart of evangelism. When we know God loves us this way, we are set free to love others in this same way. We are animated by a self-giving and humble love for those who don't yet know Christ. So, just to sum it up, evangelism is spirit-led. Through evangelism, God is inviting us to participate in his plan of evangelism. And evangelism is ultimately rooted in God's self-giving love for us. It is the bridegroom. Come for his bride. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I give you thanks and praise for the beauty of your word and for the power of your word. And Jesus, that you have come for us, an unworthy bride, because of your great love for us as the true bridegroom. Lord, I pray that that would um, minister to us and free us from guilt and shame, knowing that it's your blood on the cross that washes us and makes us clean and worthy. And Lord, as we experience that, would you kindle in our hearts a love for our neighbor and our friends that we might share this good news? Lord, because they are desperate to hear it. They are asking all kinds of questions, longing for your truth and your goodness and your love for them. So Lord, help us to be witnesses of this great gospel. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening. We hope this resource has been helpful to you. If you have questions or are just looking for more information, you can check out our website at apostleshouston.org.